So, how many of you are junior hires right now? Raise your hand. Brave junior hires, raise your hand. Oh yeah, sorry, that's so confusing. Yeah, we don't call it that anymore. We call it middle school. Uh, when I was a middle schooler, when I was a junior hire, I'm gonna call it what I want, okay? When I was a junior hire, not a middle schooler, um, I attended our church. Um, I've been attending our church for a long time, and when we, uh, if, if you have grown up in our church at all, and especially if you've been involved on the Chinese side, when we have combined services, when we, uh, in our watch group meeting, when we do communion, there is one church tradition and one traditional song that characterizes our church more than any other. This is a song called, Because He Lives. Okay, it goes like this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And okay, so I, if you haven't heard that song, what I want you to do is I want you to go on your phone and look up the lyrics to that song right now and read through them because I'm going to be talking about it a little bit. But I'll keep going. Um, when I was in middle school, uh, when we would sing this song, I thought it was so old-fashioned. And everyone on the Chinese side has a very distinct way of singing it. Uh, which is very different than like the pop music or the Christian music or whatever I grew up with or like emo music, punk, that's the stuff I would listen to. Uh, it's a very specific kind of operatic type of singing, okay? So it's, it's more choir related, it's more choral. And what I would notice is when Uncle Rupert and the different people on the Chinese side sang, all of the guys would sing like this. Because he lived. You know, like, so they do a very pronounced vibrato and it's very, that's a very specific style that they would sing in. And so when my friends and I would hear this song every single time, do you know what we'd do? This was when we were in middle school, so our voices were cracking, but we, we could try as best as we could to sing in a really low voice and to do the exaggerated vibrato. So I was like, because I know. And like we would shake our heads up and down like that, literally. Um, now, when I was in middle school, uh, I didn't really think much of that song. It actually has a really good melody. It has kind of a cool story behind the writing of the song. It's a relatively recent hymn. Um, I think it was published in 1971. And you guys are saying like, that's recent, Daniel? Well, there are some other hymns that were published in German in the 16th century, like A Mighty Fortress is My God. So it's, it's relatively recent compared to that one. Uh, but this hymn actually is quite profound. And this is something that's characterized our church DNA for a long time. This song has meant so much to us. Now, if you're looking at the lyrics of the song, uh, it actually makes very profound statements about a, a concept that we often don't talk about, but we should talk about more often. Uh, so let me, let me do, a, this is a little riddle or test that my dad likes to do. I want you to think of a four-letter word a four-letter Christian word <laughs> that uh, ends with the, the letter E and has O as the second letter. So there are four words. This is like one of those game shows, right? So it's blank, O, blank, E. What's the word? <laughs> Many of you said love. You knew it was a trick question, and my dad has already done this. The actual word it's talking about is hope. It's hope. How many people got that right? 
Good job, Amber. Amber. Amber is super smart and talented and amazing, so I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised you get it right. Um, this word hope is something that we don't think about, we don't talk about, uh, but this song communicates so well hope. And the logic of the song is this. Because Jesus Christ died, and not only that, he rose again, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone, because I know he holds the future. And so in the chorus, each, each statement that the person is making is saying, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I can have hope in different circumstances. Uh, in one of the other stanzas, the verse, uh, again, when I was in middle school, this didn't strike me. Now it strikes me a lot because I have a kid. Uh, the, one of the verses goes, um, how sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the love and joy he gives, or something like that. Um, but something greater still, the calm assurance, the ch the, this is the part, the child can face uncertain days and know he lives. And so th this, the song was literally written when the wife of the hymn writer uh, was about to have their third kid, and it was 71, right? So you're thinking about Vietnam, you're thinking about you know, the, the Cold War is coming down the pipe. Like, there's all kinds of tensions and stresses and difficulties on the future. And this mom, she literally had a night where she was staying up at night, and she's like, how can I let this child come into a world that is so uncertain and dangerous and despairing? Because he lives. This song is actually so profound, and it communicates something about Christian hope. Uh, and when you understand the logic of hope, when you understand, because, okay, when we're celebrating Easter, if you're not, like, familiar with Christian, Christianese, you might be thinking to yourself, these are the good questions. These are the questions that middle school boys ask. Um, questions like this. What the heck does some Jewish guy dying 2,000 years ago mean for my life now? It doesn't make any sense. What difference does it make? And the difference it makes, if you understand the, the doctrine of Christian hope, actually is all the difference in the world. And this song communicates something about the hope that we have as a result of the resurrection. And when I think about the situation that we live in now, as a parent, when I think about Toby growing up, um, parents ask these questions, uh, and like, like millennial parents, etc., where they ask themselves, will the future of my child even be as good as my future? Or are things actually getting worse? You know, when you think about uh, racial injustice, when you think about poverty, when you think about the wackiness going on in politics, et cetera, whatever it is, when you think about the state of the economy, when you think about education systems, are things getting worse? How can I have hope for my little Toby, right? And this is a real thing that you experience as a parent, where I didn't care about a lot of things before I had Toby. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, what school is he going to go to? What's the state of California schools? Maybe it's better to move to a different state. Like, blah! Like, how is he going to deal with the future? My child can face uncertain days because Jesus Christ lives. How does that work? What we're going to do today is we're going to read through my favorite book in the Bible. Well, no, we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read through five verses of what 
I'm not sure if this is my favorite. It's, it's up there now. I think it's probably my favorite book. We're going to read through Romans 5, chapter, uh, chap, Ro- oh my gosh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And what I want you to see from this passage is Paul is doing the exact same thing that the song Because He Lives is doing. Paul is showing us the benefits or the, the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Easter is a time where we celebrate what Jesus did, what happened to Jesus. He died and he rose again. But this sermon hopefully can answer the question, what difference does it make for me right now? And there are three differences it makes. There are actually more in this passage, but there are three differences it makes that I want to show you from here. The first one is because Jesus Christ lives, we stand in God's favor. And I'll explain what that means. Second, because Jesus Christ lives, we anticipate future glory. We hope in future glory. Number three, because Jesus Christ lives, we can face suffering with hope right now. We can face suffering with hope. So let's read through the passage and then we'll go through the points. This is Paul writing. Now, if you notice in chapter 4, uh, verses 24 and 25, Paul says this It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the context is Paul is referring directly to the resurrection of Jesus and saying, because Jesus lives, we have justification. And then this is where he goes with that. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, I pray your Spirit would be pouring out your love in our hearts, that you would even be so gracious as to give us a, a felt, experienced assurance of your love for us, of your grace for us, and that would transform us to be people who can look at future uncertainty and be hopeful. I pray you would also help us understand what hope means in ways that would transform us to make us confounding to the people around us, that they would be able to look at us and say, how can you stay so hopeful in the midst of the sufferings you're facing? And I pray we would be able to say, because he lives, I can hope. Um, So I pray you would do that by your power this morning, and I pray you would make our joy full in you as we understand what it means to hope. Amen. So there are three things, three benefits that he talks about in this passage. Um, First of all, if you check out verse 2, Paul says, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, when I was reading the context, Paul says Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. Okay, I have to warn you ahead of time. I'm going to have to explain a number of terms 
because many of us have no clue what these terms are, and I'm going to have to redefine certain words that you think you understand, but, it, but we don't because English is a different language than the language this was written in. So uh, Paul's argument is because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, we have justification by faith. Justification is a fancy theological term that simply means this. Um, when I get into a fight with someone on the basketball court, are you surprised? No, I've, I think I've preached about this before, which is, pro, it doesn't happen that often, but every once in a while it happens. When I get a, in a fight with someone on the basketball court, um, at some point, you know, cooler heads prevail. Uh, like, I never get into a fight. Like, anyway, I, I play overly physical, and then they get mad at me, and then maybe they shove me. I don't shove them back, but I don't, yeah, anyway. Uh, what happens is cooler heads prevail, and I calm down a little bit, and then I'm like, you know what, man? I was out of line. I'm sorry. And then you know what you say? You ask, are we good? You know? You know what that means? Like, what, what I'm asking is, is our relationship okay, even though we just had a fight? Are we good? What justification is, is God and you looking at each other and saying, are we good? And then when you're justified by faith, God says, yes, we're good. We are on good terms with each other. And this is the implication. If Jesus died from the dead, uh, rose from the, Jesus died and rose from the dead, it is possible to be justified by faith. And then if we are justified by faith, this is one of the benefits. We have obtained access by faith into the grace, this grace in which we stand. So let me unpack for you one of the, the first benefits of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we stand in God's grace. Now, the word grace, everyone talks about it, but very few people can actually explain what it means. And I'm, for, my, for our purposes, I'm gonna say the word grace means God's favor. Now, let me, let's think about favors for a second. And as we're thinking about this, I want you to see what a big deal it is that we stand in God's grace. And then we're even going to think about what uh, the impact that standing in someone's grace or having God's favor has for your future. But we'll get there. What does it mean to have someone's favor? What difference does it make? Um, a couple of examples of having someone's favor. So I don't know why I'm using basketball illustrations. I'm fitting into the stereotype of um, like guys where you, all of your illustrations are sports related. But anyway, um, so there is a time uh, a, a while back, last year, where I got to attend a Warriors game. Uh, I had a relative uh, whose financial advisor was someone who purchased season tickets for the Warriors, and these were like really, really good expensive seats, and they would just give free tickets to their clients whenever they wanted. I mean, they had a limited number, but as a client of this financial advisor, you could go, and I think it was like row 30 or something like that, which is, like, I have never in my life been that close to the court as I was on that night. Now, what it, uh, why did I get these tickets? Number one, uh, her family could care less about the Warriors. They don't know anything about basketball, so it doesn't matter to them. But number two, I got the tickets because they love me and I have their favor, right? If I have their favor, 
then they want to give me good things. They want to do good things for me. And so therefore, I was able to sit in like row 30 with my friends and watch the Warriors play the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I had a blast. This is what it means to be in someone's grace. Good graces, right? Now think for a second about what it's like to have, to stand in God's grace, to stand in God's favor. Let me use another example. Um, who's your favorite tech billionaire? It's probably Elon Musk. Is that everyone's favorite now? No, I mean, it used to be, uh, everyone always, always talk about Bill Gates, right? So, but Bill Gates is old and obsolete now. Or I don't know. Well, like Elon Musk, right? Now, if, like, imagine for a second that you're going through um, a hard time in life. Uh, pretend you're applying to colleges and you're struggling with some like personal issues. Your grades are dropping. You're not sure how, what, how good of a college you'll be able to get into. Um, what difference does it make knowing that you are Elon Musk's daughter? Do you care about what not being able to get into the college you want if you're Elon Musk's daughter? Now, you probably do, but doesn't it make a big difference to you knowing that whatever happens in your life, all of Elon Musk's considerable money, connections, resources, intelligence, if, I, would, I mean, I guess it depends on what you think about Elon Musk, but all of those resources, he is saying, you have my favor, and I will help you with any problem that you go through. No matter how bad the problems are, I will find you help, the help you need. If you're, if you're struggling with addiction, I'll pay for the most expensive like addiction counseling. I'll, I'll send you into the like 10 gazillion dollar Hollywood rehab for celebrities. I'll do whatever I can to get you help. If you don't get into that school, I'm going to donate $100 million <laughs> to open up a new dorm room and I think they might get you into, let you into the school if I do. You know what? All of the resources of Elon Musk, you have the favor of him. That makes a huge difference in your life, right? Now, who's bigger, who's smarter, who's richer, God or Elon Musk? When you stand in the grace of God, what it means is once and forever, if you've been justified by faith, God is on your side God is with you. God will never abandon you. God will never give up on you. And not only that, it's not simply the absence of forgiveness. Um, like, you know, people talk about forgiveness, right? When you become a Christian, God forgives you of all your sins. The slate is wiped clean. But grace is not just uh, being forgiven. That's like wiping the slate clean and starting from zero. Grace is saying, all of God's favor is working towards you. And he is the most powerful, the most loving, the wisest being. And so everything in your life, no matter what is going wrong with you, if you stand in his grace, if you know that you have his favor, that gives you hope. How does that give you hope? What is hope? Um, if you look at the next verse, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, we stand in God's favor, and not only that, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, this is, this is such a rich statement. This is describing what it's like to be a Christian. 
Because Jesus lives, we stand in grace, we have God's favor, and because we have God's favor, we can extrapolate to the future and say, what is extrapolating? It's saying, if this is how God has treated me in the past and in the present, this is the, this is the graph, right? This is the direction it's going, the data is going. I can extrapolate into the future and say, if I have the favor of God now, if I had the favor of God in the past, I will always have the favor of God. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? Um, if you look at the chart, your hope is extrapolating the grace of God into the future. And again, think about it if you're Elon Musk's daughter. If Elon Musk has treated you well as a father, in five years, no matter what happens, you can be sure, you can have assurance that he's going to treat you in the same way. Now, Elon Musk is not as trustworthy as God, but what I'm saying is, when you understand that you stand in grace, when you understand you're justified by faith, once and forever saved, once and forever forgiven, God is on your side. And Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Then you can have hope for your future. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow, God will still be with me. God will still be using all of his resources for your benefit because he loves you. And there's nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of God if you believe in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at this hope. Um, this is where I have to define some terms. Uh, the translation says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So first, let's look at what rejoice means. Um, when you read the word rejoice, you think it means like celebrate, you know, like, woo, you know, celebrate good times, rejoice. But what it really means is you boast and you glory in something. This is kind of hard to explain. Um, it's like, it's like when the Warriors won the championship, I glory in it. The, what, what has happened thrills me. And it's not simply like a disinterested intellectual thing. You rejoice, you boast in it. You boast in this thing, right? But what, does, what is Paul saying that as a Christian we boast in? We boast in, we glory in hope of the glory of God. So what is hope? The English word for hope um, has a sense of uncertainty and perhaps even unlikelihood. You know what I mean? Like, oh man, I really hope I get into that college. You're kind of like, there's almost like a, like a addendum whenever you say, I hope that. It's like, I hope that, but I probably won't. It's unlikely, you know? And so hope, there's this huge sense of like, I don't think it's gonna happen. I really hope so, I really wish, but it's, you know, it's not very likely. That is almost the opposite of this Christian word hope. Because the Christian word hope means you have certainty of a good future. You have a certain destiny. And the logic is, if God is with you now, if you stand in grace, you can have hope because you know that he'll be with you in the future. And so again, you're extrapolating into the future. Hope is grace extrapolated to the future, right? And what do we hope in? So I boast in this future I have with God. I boast in hope. It doesn't say I boast in the hope. It says I boast in hope of the glory of God. What does the glory of God mean? Um, this is such an incredible phrase. 
And this has so much more personal meaning to me after the last few years. Um, the hope of the glory of God means a few things, but let me, let me put it this way. There is a sermon by a pastor, um, theologian named Jonathan Edwards. This is one of America's greatest geniuses that ever lived, and he was a Christian theologian. Um, he was not a perfect guy, but he wrote a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. When Paul says we boast in hope of the glory of God, when he says the glory of God, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about heaven being a world of love. And we can look at this from a number of different ways. Number one, uh, heaven being a world of love, Paul's view of the glory of God, the future glory that we have to look forward to, is in the future, we will be reunited to loved ones who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We will be reunited with loved ones who have passed away. This is such an incredible hope to look forward to. Heaven is a world of love where the people that you've lost, you can be with them again. And there are a lot of reasons this communicates with me. Uh, Levi's like, yay! <laughs> the timing was great. Um, when uh, in 2020, at the end of 2020, my dad um, had a heart attack, serious heart attack. And I remember dealing with my fear of him dying. I really do. Well, in the week between the time he had the heart attack and when he was having surgery, um, I was a mess. I was a mess. I did not know what I was feeling. I didn't know what was going on, but I was stressed out. I felt terrible and I was scared. I was scared because I never existentially, experientially had had to grapple with the idea that my dad is going to die. And I know how this is hitting some of you, but all, all I'm saying is all of a sudden, death became a reality. All my life, I know that death is coming. I think about death. I'm kind of like a mopey, depressive person, so I might think about death more than you do. But all of a sudden, it was an existential reality to me because someone who I really love and cherish could have died. And he's fine. You know, he's perfectly successful surgery. He's, he's healthier now than he was back then. But for heaven to be a world of love, to boast in, to glory in our future hope, future glory, the glory of God, is to say, I am so looking forward to being re reunited to those people I've lost. And I know that even if my dad dies, because, I mean, he will, and so will I, I will die at some point, that is not the end. Let me, let me talk to you a little bit more about death. Um, there was a, uh, okay, I believe he was a pastor. He was either a pastor or he attended a church in Philadelphia. This is an illustration from a Tim Keller book. Um, he attended a church in Philadelphia. So he had a wife and three kids. And one day, his wife was hit by a truck and killed. And he was driving his three kids to the funeral, and then the thought struck him. He turned to his kids and he said, kids, would you rather be hit by a truck or hit by the shadow of a truck? And all the kids said, oh, it's obvious. Obviously, we would rather be hit by the shadow of the truck. And then he said this, because of the resurrection, I don't know if he said because of the resurrection, but he said, your mom was not, uh, 
your mom was not hit by the truck, your mom was hit by the shadow of the truck. And though we are, though we have had this great rupture and loss and tragedy, death doesn't have the final word. Death is only a shadow. And the only reason we can say that is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, his disciples were left without hope. They were absolutely despairing. Jesus' mother saw him get crucified. And in his last words, one of the things he did was try to comfort her. But can you imagine what it would be like to lose your son? But because of the resurrection, we have hope. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead, which means when Jesus rose from the dead, God promises there will be other resurrections. And if you know Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, when death hits you, when death hits my dad, when death hits me, it's just a shadow. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting? Where's your power? You have no power anymore because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we can glory, we can boast in, we can anticipate and look forward to this future glory where we can be reunited and heaven is a world of love. But there's even more. Because when Paul says the glory of God, it's not simply saying like heaven is a place where you're reunited with your lost ones. Heaven is a place where you will see God's glory and you'll see him face to face in a way that we desperately need and long for. In my life, there have been some moments where I've tasted and seen, I've had experiences with God where I have an overwhelming sense of his love for me and his beauty towards me. And when I taste those, those little, those are just like the smallest little appetizers of what it's going to be like when you see God face to face in person. I want you to think about, okay, like let's say you crush on K-pop stars. Um, and that one K-pop star you like is so, like, whatever, so handsome, blah, 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 so talented. That's just like a tiny, like, little taste of what it's like to be in God's presence because God is infinitely more beautiful. God is infinitely more powerful. God created everything. If you idolize artists, can you imagine what it would be like to meet the creator of all of the universe? All of the bizarre animals that live in this world, I'm really interested in animals, in marine life. When I was in second grade, I wanted to be a marine biologist because it's so cool. Creatures are so alien and bizarre and beautiful and strange, and God made those. God drew those into reality. Can you imagine what it would be like to meet such a talented artist and talk to him about his creative process? But not only that, this God who made everything, he loves you. Do you know what it's like to be loved by someone? Do you know what it's like to really, really long for someone's approval and their acclaim and for them to say, you know what, I like you too. I feel the same way about you that you feel about me. That uplifts you. That is the best thing in the world when someone loves you. That is just an appetizer, a foretaste of what it's like for God, our Lord and Savior, to see us face to face in heaven and for him to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, or you are my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. 
This is such an incredible hope. This is something that, this is something that transforms everything, isn't it? When you have this future hope to look forward to, it transforms everything right now. Now, before we get into how this transforms suffering, some of you might still be saying, um, you know, that's in the future. What difference does that make for my suffering right now? And what I would say to you is your expectation of the future and your kind of like projecting what your future will be like has a tremendous impact on how you feel right now and how you behave right now. So again, another illustration um, from Tim Keller. Uh, imagine that there are two people who are working in the most disgusting, menial job in the world. Like you're in a widget factory, and all you do for 12 hours a day, brutal conditions, 105 degree weather, is you get this thingamajig and then you stick it in the other, whatchamacallit, right? And then you just do that over and over and over and over again for 12 hours a day. Now, one person doing that job for a year gets $15,000. But the other person gets $15 million. Is that a big difference? Would their present experience of the job be the same or be different? You know that the person who's making $15 million, how do they get through? They're constantly saying, what am I going to be able to do? What freedom, what opportunities am I going to be have? I just have to get through this one year. If I can just get through this, this day, then there's one more day after that, and then there are 363 days after that, and then I'll be free. Then I'll be rich. Then I'll be able to do whatever I want. And that gives them strength to get through. But if they make $15,000 a year, it's demeaning, it's hopeless. They can't deal with it because they have no future hope. This is how we deal with crappy school projects. You, it's the hope of getting into a good college. This is how we deal with crappy jobs. It's the hope of financial independence, retire early. It's hope of whatever it might be, right? Now, the reason we are hopeless and despairing as Christians is because we don't understand, we don't have certainty about where we're heading. But if we know where we're heading, that changes how we feel right now. And Paul says, I consider the light and uh, so I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the, to future glory, because we have something so amazing to look forward to. It actually allows us to have joy and boast in it and think about it and imagine it. We daydream about the day when we will be reunited to people we've lost. I daydream about the day when our bodies will be redeemed, where we have. We have issues, like we all have different issues. Our bodies are messed up. Our bodies are falling apart in all kinds of different ways. Time and age gets everyone. Doesn't matter how beautiful you are, just wait 50 years. How good are you gonna look? Less good, right? And then just wait 20 more years. You know, because there are some celebrities who everyone says, oh, she's so beautiful, she's like 75. Um, but still, time and age gets us all. But in the future glory, our bodies will be redeemed and glorious. And this is something I'm really looking forward to. Um, you know, I, I share with how I struggle with depression. And um, I think often it, uh, so I don't feel as despairing as, and hopeless as I used to, but depression kind of numbs my ability to emotionally connect to things around me and people around me, honestly. So this is something that I struggle with where I know in this moment, I should feel a certain way. I should be happy for that person but I just feel numb. 
And I'm used to dealing with it. And so I can deal with it. But I'm looking forward to the day where, where I won't even have to deal with it, where my mind functions the way God has created it to, correctly. I can feel deep, overwhelming joy when someone else has success. I'm no longer emotionally numb. The other thing that impacts me is my hobbies, the things I love doing. This is common for everyone, but if you're depressed, it has a special effect where the things that you normally love just does nothing. You get no dopamine hit. It just feels totally pointless. And this could be the thing you love the most in the world. The thing I love the most in the world, it does nothing for me because I struggle with this decaying body and this decaying world and this decaying mind. Sin, disease, death, um, handicaps, whatever you want to call it. But there's hope of future glory. So let me use, um, let's get to the last part. How do we deal with suffering? How does the resurrection make a difference in suffering? Paul says this, more than that, more than simply boasting in the hope of the glory of God, we boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is saying something that is so bizarre and so confounding. Paul is saying that the suffering that we're going through now with God is productive. Now everyone, like many people will say suffering is productive, like what, kills, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This isn't simply saying that. This is saying we are so confident in our future hope, we're so confident that we stand in the grace of God that no suffering can change how God feels about us and no suffering can change how God will be with us in the suffering, bringing comfort, bringing help, bringing an experience of his love, I am so confident in my suffering that God will be with me. But not only that, God will use my suffering to produce wonderful things in my life. What, is, what does God produce? Um, it says, our suffering produces endurance. This is just, this is just a basic observation about life. Uh, if someone does not go through suffering, they are a shallow person who gives up easily. Now, I'm saying that really meanly, but if you have met someone who has like a charmed life, everything has been easy for them, the first time they run into some kind of serious obstacle, they fall apart. And not only that, the type of person who's led a charmed life, when they run into someone who's going through something really serious and hard, they have no clue how to relate to them. Because they just don't. Like, they're like, why don't you just not feel sad like I do? Why don't you just look in the mirror in the morning and be like, like, look how beautiful I am. Look how rich I am. Everything's great. Why don't you just do that? Or why don't you just buy yourself a manicure? And the person suffering is like, are you serious? You're shallow. You don't realize that life is an incredible tragedy. And so, you know, like in Buddhism, one of the core tenets is all of life is suffering. And that's much closer to the truth than someone who doesn't know how to deal with it, right? That's much, much closer to the truth than saying, oh, life is basically good and it's really easy. You just have to be smart or you just have to work hard and then everything will be fine for you. That's not true. You gotta deal with suffering and Christianity deals with suffering. Paul says, we boast in our suffering because you will suffer. 
you will suffer. So then how can you have hope in the suffering? Because God will produce it into something amazing. God produces endurance, where you're able to go through really hard things, and this is otherworldly. You will confound people with the way you handle suffering if you understand the hope of Christianity. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. The word character there means testedness, where you, when you go through this test, you are battle-hardened or battle-tested. You know how to persevere when things are really difficult and they don't go, go your way. You are um, resilient. You go, you, when you're faced with obstacles, you don't give up. You know how to get through them. You know how to endure them. That's what it means to have character. And get this, character produces hope. When you have been tested by suffering over and over and over again, the end result that God produces is, again, hope. And that word hope means what? It means you know you have a certain future, a certain future of good because God promised it. God promised it. And that's what it means to trust God. You say, I am suffering right now, but God is engulfing my suffering by working good things in my life. But not only that, in the end, in the future glory, God will undo everything sad. He will wipe every tear from my eyes. And so I can endure. And so I can persevere. And so not only that, I can have hope. I can have hope. Let me give you an example of some people who uh, demonstrate otherworldly, bizarre hope in the face of atrocious human circumstances. So number one, uh, there's a gospel band I really love called the Blind Boys of Alabama. And uh, these guys, uh, the Blind Boys of Alabama, as a group, uh, have been around since 1939. That was when the group was first founded. The oldest living member in the group right now is, I think, 90 years old, and he's been touring with the group for 40 years. And this man was born blind. He started singing at a school for the blind. And it was either in, um, I think it was in Tuskegee. It was in Alabama, an Alabama school for the blind. He started singing, and he's been singing ever since. And my favorite album by them is called Almost Home. This is a man who is very, very, very old, and he's been blind his whole life. And some of the lyrics from their songs, when you understand the context, they just hit you. Um, he has a song that says, I can see, can't you see, God's been good to me. This is a man who has been blind for 90 years, and he says, I can see, even though I'm blind, how God has been good with me throughout my entire life. This is a man who has been tested and endured and refined by suffering, and because of that, he presents to people a conundrum. How can you, who have experienced such difficult suffering, be so hopeful and optimistic when your heart has been broken so many times? How can you possibly stay optimistic? He sings another song called Almost Home. Really gets me every time. Um, and he basically, the song is just, he says like, it's been a long, long road since Alabama. Um, it's been, uh, I've been a long time gone. I've been up, I've been down, whole world round, but I'm almost home. And he's saying, I am almost going to be with my Savior. I'm going to see the future glory. Faith will turn to sight. 
where I can physically hold Jesus in my arms and weep and praise him. That is something incredible that has sustained him through his entire life. And I could give you more examples. There are people in our church who are like this. There are people in our church who have faced tragedies you can't imagine, and yet they show up. And not only that, they praise God. How can you be hopeful when you face these tragedies and difficulties? Because of this, because of what God is doing in, in our suffering, because we have this future hope. Uh, I gotta go faster. Another example. Uh, there's a lady named Joni Erickson Tada. She's a famous Christian speaker, author, radio host. When she was 17 years old, and so she's 72 years old now. When she was 17 years old, she was in a diving accident where I believe she dove into water that was shallow and she basically rammed her head into the bottom and she broke her spine. So for 55 years, she's been quadriplegic and she's been confined to a wheelchair. When she was young, as a Christian, she went to a more liturgical church and there was a time when, uh, during service, the, the priest would say to everyone, okay, everyone, can you kneel? And every time the priest would ask them to do that, she would burst into tears because she was confined to her wheelchair and could literally not move herself to kneel before God, even though she deeply wanted to. And she says this. So this quote, it's confounding. I don't understand how she can say this, but it's because her hope is so real to her. She says this. When I get to heaven, when I'm reunited with God, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to kneel before my Lord Jesus and give him praise. And the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to jump to my feet and dance and rejoice before him. She is looking forward to this future hope, and she doesn't sugarcoat it. Not only is she quadriplegic, but she has chronic pain. And so when she wakes up in the morning, every day, she deals with this suffering. And she says, I, there are so many days where I can't handle it. And so I just cry out to God, and I say, God, help me get through this day. And she says, he does. This is her testimony. How can you explain it? How can you explain her hope in suffering? It's inexplicable. It's only explained by something God could do. Because of the resurrection, we stand in grace. We have God's favor. Because of the res resurrection, we have a future hope. And this hope sustains us. We have endurance. And it transforms suffering. Because when she's in heaven, if she never was quadriplegic, do you think she would appreciate being able to kneel before Jesus in the same way? And this is the incredible thing. Our experience of suffering somehow transforms the future and makes us appreciate even more those things. The, the suffering transforms the future glory when we will be restored. Now, how do you get this? Um, because if we're honest, we're probably, many of us probably don't like, know what this ex is experience is like. When we face suffering, we grumble, we complain, we fall apart, uh, we try to fix it. We have all of these different tactics for dealing with the suffering. We don't have surety about this future hope. How do we get it? And it says in the last uh, verse, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Honestly, uh, when Paul gets to this last verse, 
I've been talking on sort of like an intellectual world where if you understand the right concepts, this gives you endurance. I think this is really important because when you guys think about hope, it's super fuzzy. You have no clue what you're hoping for. And so when people say, oh, be hopeful, they're just like, why? You're just like, why? I don't imagine anything. I don't, I don't see any of the beauty of what God is leading me towards. But here, Paul is talking about a direct, immediate experience of God's love through his Holy Spirit that sustains you. And again, for some of you, I don't know if you know what this is like either. The love of the Holy Spirit is poured out in your heart. And if you think about what pouring means, it's like it's, it flows, it gushes out, it flows everywhere in your heart. Your experience, your feelings change because the Holy Spirit is in you and reminding you, assuring you of God's love for you in the midst of your suffering. And this is the crazy thing. It, when you've experienced this time after time, I feel like, I'm, look, I don't always experience it, but when I'm going through especially deep suffering or difficulty, I pray for this because I know I can't make it on my own. I say, God, look, I can't handle this. Can you please give me a reminder of your love for me? Can you help me experience it in a way that I can keep going and not give up? And time after time, not all is at the time I want, but time after time, God has done it. And so this is what it means to grow in your trust of God. Uh, there is a process by which when you first face suffering, you will fall apart. Everyone does it. I, I do it like... But when you get to these older people, uh, Jimmy Carter, um, that's the guy, the gospel singer, my dad, uh, Joni Tata Erickson, they've experienced this so many times, God being with them so many times, that when they see their suffering, they're like, you know what, this sucks, I hate this, but if I'm suffering this much, I know God's going to come through, and I will experience God's love in new, fresh ways that I never would have imagined. And that's how you can actually boast and glory in your suffering. Before God pours out love, you can boast in your suffering because you are so assured, you have so much trust that he will come through for you. This is what it means to be a Christian. And this is something that is absolutely confounding to people whose hope is in this world, whose hope depends on your circumstances being good, whose hope depends on your education, your money, your good looks, whatever it might be. This doesn't make any sense. But Christians have always been the people who were able to have hope, though all of their circumstances were literally hell. Do you know this hope? Do you know the implications of the resurrection for you? When, Mary, when, when the disciples came to the tomb, uh, they found that the stone had been rolled away and the body of Jesus was not found there. And because of that, because of that, they could have hope for the future. And then Jesus met with them he had a resurrected, glorified body, and he was able to talk to them and reassure them. And because he is the first fruits, you can know that you will be with God. You can know that God is with you now, and you can trust in the waiting period, in the suffering. Um, I, I seriously, all, like, all I want, I, all, I would just love if, as we're taking communion, you would pray this to God. If you're going through a special, um, if you're going through specially difficult suffering right now, um, will you pray to God that he would encourage you, that he would give you a taste of his love for you by his Holy Spirit? And when you do that, I am, I am so sure that God will come through with you and encourage you 
And as you experience this over time, it will absolutely transform your present suffering and help you look forward to this future hope.